Welcome to the number one show and the source of truth for all things medtech. Here, we reveal the secrets and stories behind the investments, science, and commercialization of the medtech industry. Every week, we'll take you on a wild ride with the biggest names in the game, from entrepreneurs and investors who are shaking up the market, to healthcare providers who are revolutionizing the way we think and practice medicine. So hold on tight and get ready for a journey like no other. This is the State of MedTech. Hey everybody, welcome back to the show, and we got another venture capital episode. Uh, this time with uh, with a with a VC who's actually quite unique in the sense that he used to be a pro basketball player, um, and aside from that, has a remarkable uh, career. And so, um, had to have him on. But more importantly, um, his his VC firm has such a fascinating investment thesis, and that's Mr. Asaf Barnea. Uh, Mr. Barnea uh, is a seasoned entrepreneur and a venture professional. And uh, he leads, since its inception in 2014, Sonara Ventures, which is a healthcare innovation fund backed by Philips and Teva investing um, specifically in digital health, medical devices, and bioconvergence technology. That latter one is the one that really caught my eye. He's also the founder and managing partner of Sonara Capital, um, which is a new follow-up fund for Sonara Ventures that focuses on A and B round investments in healthcare related technologies. Now, in relation to his uh, role at Sonara, Mr. Barnea chairs the Life Science Advisory Board at the Israel Export Institute on behalf of the Israeli government, which essentially promotes and advances the export of Israeli technologies in medical, biotech, and pharma and digital fields in the global markets. If you are unaware of this, Israel is a hotbed uh, for innovation, but um, very specifically medtech innovation. I think at one point, if not it still is. There's, I think, more startups per square mile in Israel than anywhere else in the world, including uh, places like Miami, San Francisco, and other startup ecosystems. Now, before all this, uh, Asaf was also advising the World Bank's IFC venture uh, capital team and is the co-founder of the IFC's Tech Emerge program, which is a unique acceleration program. Uh, platform that connects healthcare startups from around the world with leading corporations and hospitals in emerging economies. And in 2018, um, Tech Emerge Health has won uh, won the World Bank Group Presidents Award for Innovation. Um, just a little bit uh, uh, on a soft background, just outside of the venture medtech world. Um, he was a former uh, college basketball player at the uh, famous Seton Hall University um, during the 90s where, I mean, the Big East was really competitive, especially back then. But back then, uh, he was part of the team that won the Big East championship against Georgetown in 1991. Um, and he went on also to play professional basketball. So this episode, we talk a lot about not only his background, but more importantly, um, Sonara Ventures' uh, venture thesis and investment thesis, the things they like to invest in, and a lot of uh, Asaf's philosophy when it comes to innovation in the space. It's a great conversation. I really loved having him on the show, and I kind of want to have him back on to talk more specifically about investments in the world of bioconvergence. Now, before we get into the episode, a couple things I want to remind our audience about. Number one, if you are a founder 
or maybe a VP of sales or VP of marketing, we all know the most important thing for a company after you raise money is actually driving adoption of your technology. So finding those early adopters is key. Now, the problem with that is it's not like the old way 10, 20, 30 years ago where it was as simple as figuring out, well, who speaks the most on Podium? Because that's often not the best adopter for your technology. This is where we need data to enable our decisions. Again, another problem is that a lot of the databases that exist out there that tell you about a physician's procedure history, their societies they're a part of, all the information you need to target a physician, they cost a lot of money. And a lot of times in my experience, they've often been very clunky. I discovered this early stage startup called Alpha Sophia that specifically their entire thesis is around early adoption and early adopters. Their platform is very simple and easy to use, really nice UI, and you're able to search uh, through procedures and specialization, you're able to access contact information, and this was something that got my that actually got me quite excited. Their team also plugs all these clinicians, right? So you can, let's say, do a search for uh, the urologist with the top procedure flow in, let's say, New York City. And it also shows their Twitter profile, their Instagram profile, and LinkedIn profiles. And I think that's very important because when it comes to finding early adopters, a lot of times you can find diamonds in the rough who have good procedure volume, but in fact have really strong social media presence, which helps drive product awareness and thus product adoption. So the best part about all this their, their pricing is insane. Their pricing for using their platform is as low as $300 a month. And just for being a listener of this show, they have a fantastic offer just for you. You can get three free profiles. So you go and sign up with them just to give get a quick demo. You go to alphasophia.com forward slash Omar. That's A-L-P-H-A-S-O-P-H-I-A.com forward slash Omar. Submit your information. Their team will reach out to you. You get on a call. They'll open their platform up. You tell them the procedure, the type of the physician, whatever it is you want to see, and they're going to give you three profiles for free without having to sign up or give the, give give anything up or get a credit card. You know, a lot of these platforms require you to do all these things. They're going to give that for free. Okay. Highly recommend you, you check them out. And lastly, if you are in fact a founder, and I know how difficult it is right now as a founder to essentially do the thing that you're supposed to do, which is driving awareness with the market to attract investors and also get some commercial pipeline going, right? It's almost like a juggling act if you know you already have so many things to do already. Well, I work specifically with early stage companies and their CEO and their leadership team to figure out how do you use social media in an effective and scalable way to attract both investors and clinicians for commercial pipeline. I worked with a variety of companies, but here's one that you might be aware of, which is Moon Surgical. Moon Surgical is a surgical robotics company out of France. They've had wonderful success in raising their Series A and B. And here is what their CEO, Ann Ostewit, and their chief strategy officer, Jeffrey Averis, had to say about the engagement. The results were amazing. The traffic that was driven to not just our company site, but also our personal sites, over 300% of what it typically was on a regular basis while we had the campaigns going. We know the results were being achieved, and that's why it's so great to work with Omar. The level of inbound interest we were getting was substantial, especially from investors. It has only been growing since then. So we've been leveraging Omar's work and what we learned from him continuously in the past two years. And what were the specific results? That spring uh, that we worked together, they were able to raise a $31 million Series A with GT Healthcare. And then a year later, uh, a $55 million Series B with Sophie Nova and NVIDIA leading the round. Now, I 
cannot say that we directly contributed to that. That would be foolish. But what I would say is that if you're a startup founder and you want to put you and your company in the best position possible to attract investors at scale, to attract commercial pipeline and give your company a fighting chance, please reach out to me. I want to work with you. Go to katibandco.com and you can schedule a time to meet with me there or just simply shoot me a message on LinkedIn. Now, with that being said, let's get on to our episode with Asaf Barnia of Sonara Ventures. Enjoy. Welcome back to the show, everybody. And we have another great guest, somebody uh, who I've been following for a long time on, on, on LinkedIn. And, uh, you know, big shout out to uh, the VP of growth over at LSI, Henry Pecky. We were catching up and he was speaking extremely highly of him. I'm like, you know, I got to have a have him on. So I'm very happy to have Asaf Barnea on from Sonara Ventures, a really interesting fund. And equally so, uh, Asaf has like a really interesting background. We're going to get into it in a moment. But Asaf, thanks for joining. It's like late over there in Israel. So I appreciate it. How are you doing? I'm good. I'm good. Thanks. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. Absolutely. I understand you just got back from like this trip in Tokyo. How was that, by the way? How did you? I've always wanted to go to Tokyo. It was amazing. I mean, I took my two boys, uh, both are like young, quite young, 12 and 10. For me, it was the fifth time in, in Japan, but I love the country and, and, you know, just to open up uh, and be open up to see different cultures. And, and Japan is like totally different, I think. It's not even Asia, as they say. So my kids were amazed. And actually, the combination, we're going to be talking about convergence. We did even see in Tokyo, the Manchester Manchester City plays against a local team. So it was a combination of, of having a European soccer you know uh, which we like also combined into into the japanese kind of tradition in the national stadium so it was it was great great that's fantastic that's fantastic yeah well you know my um uh, i i co-founded a software com uh, uh company with a with a close friend who's jap who is japanese and i always joke with them I'm like man i have to make my way to japan they always say that you when you go to asia you leave to tokyo for the for the very end of the trip because that's like the most I guess spectacular way to end. Would you agree with that? I think you know it's it's um, there's there's so much. In, I love Asia in general, but but I think really Japan and Tokyo specifically is like, uh, if not mistaken, by the way, the largest city at thirty five or thirty eight million people. I think it may it's a it, lot it, of people, yeah, people, a lot of people. So it's huge, and each of the sections is so different, and uh, even within the Japanese culture. So. It's uh, it takes it takes more than one trip to get to know and to fall in love. Some people do fall in love immediately, like I did when my first trip uh, took place. But uh, when you get to see the, the subtleties and the get to understand the culture, it's it's quite amazing. Really. Absolutely, absolutely. Well, you know, before we talk shop, and you know, uh, there's a lot about your fund and the fund thesis. I want to I want to cover. I want to cover like a little bit about your background. You have a really interesting background. Um, like to kind of like uh, jump to it, as they say, like. You're a pro basketball player for like over a decade, but before that, I mean, tell me, tell me a little bit about you. Like, where where'd you grow up? Um, you know, what what kind of things had an influence in your life? I don't think many people they go to college thinking like, oh, I'm gonna become like a med tech investor. Maybe you did, but I'm sure uh, that may not have been the route. But well, yeah, what was life like going growing up for you? So actually, I grew up in Israel in Haifa, in a city called Haifa, which is a twin city to San Francisco, and looks great kind of city. Alive. Yeah, I've been yeah. to Haifa. It's a great city. It is, and there's a beautiful mountain. There's a beautiful bay. So it, it is. It that definitely makes sense to be kind of a twin city to San Francisco, even though I know that San Francisco, in my last trip to J.P. Morgan, was actually pro providing those uh, um, evidence that San Francisco is not as it used to be. I have to say. Yeah, um, you know, you're right. I, I, I second that, unfortunately. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. 
But uh, going back to your question, I did start to play at the age of eight to play uh, basketball. Um, I just, for some, for some reason, it wasn't even a dream to become a professional. I just took it for granted. And, you know, throughout the years, I only then realized, and I've been a professional for 14 years. Then after growing up, I played college basketball for Seton Hall back at the time. The first time we took the Biggie Championship uh, in the Middle School. Good. That's a good school. That's that's tough to get, like, to be an international player and go play for a Big East school. That's that's really impressive. Yes, yes. So back at the time, you know, um, this was like two years after Seton Hall lost the, in the final in the NCAA versus Michigan. And I was very happy to join the team. And actually winning the Big East uh, championship in the Madison Square Garden versus Georgetown with Alonzo Mourning and Dikembe Mutambo getting wow. the championship ring, getting my picture in the front cover of the New York Times, the sports section. I mean, this was awesome. This was awesome within itself. And then we kept on playing and we made it to the final eight. We lost to UNLV with Larry Johnson, Stacey Ogman. That's a really uh, good team. Great. That's it's a good team to lose to. You got, I got to say, if you're going to lose to somebody, that's a good team to lose to. So eventually I came back and, and I played as a professional in Israel in the first division in the Israeli national team in Europe for 14 years as a professional. But uh, addressing the question which so many people ask me, so how did you become a venture capitalist? So while playing professional basketball and Please don't misunderstand me. Like I'm not trying to tease anyone, but it is doable to go to school and to combine even as a professional and taking it very seriously. I did three degrees. I did law school, so I'm a certified attorney. I did business school and I did political science and psychology while playing as a professional basketball. So if I need to encourage someone that combination and convergence is doable, please uh, uh, believe that it, it is doable. I mean, we, we can do more than one thing at a time. You know, I, I'm very happy you say that because, um, and I think this is like, it's going to be, I have a feeling this is going to be a big theme of our of our episode here. But, you know, I, I'm a big believer of this idea of like reading broadly, converging topics. I mean, so for example, you see I'm here in my library, a lot of people, they ask like, man, those are a lot of like sales and marketing books. I'm like, no, because like sales and marketing makes like one or two shelves. A lot of the books here, we have psychology, we have history of all these things. And I think that what made me a great, you know, at least sharpened my business acumen early in my career was oh, yes. was to read read all very broad and they, these ideas they have a magical way of converging you know so that was was that your first time like realizing this idea of convergence was like during during that time when you were a pro and you're learning i'm sure like you learned you took things and applied it to your professional career too well i have to say very openly and i hope it doesn't sound like as if i'm you know bragging about anything but it's a uh... In some cases, sometimes when you shift from one field to another, you know, people are a little bit surprised. Hey, you've been a professional basketball player. How come you decide on my investments or my, my, my dream or my startup or whatever? But I have to say that for me personally, I think it's long gone. And now, you know, pre being perceived now as a venture capitalist for over a decade, maybe close to 15 years. But people do still talk to me about basketball whenever they can and, and I get a lot of feedbacks. It's not within uh, within my stream anymore as much. It's not as important. But I have to say that the uh, there's a, a bit of a feeling of a, kind of a guilt to some extent. You know, in the early days when, when, when I did a transition and started my career in telecom in the high tech before I became a venture capitalist and doing that transition, like even to some extent in a apologetic point of view that saying, you know, I need to, I had to justify and explain, you know, like I, maybe I did just now by telling you that, you know, I did law school, I did business school, I did that, in order to justify that I'm not just a basketball player or I did not just become a venture capitalist by just transitioning because I had the, I don't know, money to invest or whatever. So 
it is part of the, the, the process, I think, that the inner self needs to feel okay about the, this convergence of who we are. Eventually, it takes some time, you know, the pathway that we're going throughout the years are those that we need to acknowledge them, not just by being proactively and doing stuff or having such and such, a, you know, missions on our life, but rather look internally and acknowledge who we are, what makes us um, motivated, what makes us... Uh, you know, special people, the way that we can bring many different shades and, and interfaces of our, of our, you know, abilities, inside abilities, psychological and others to be, you know, to, to take them and, and, and implement them externally. And this oh, yeah. is when I eventually started to kind of not to apologize anymore, but rather just, just, just uh, create yourself and invent yourself again and again as much as you can. By the way, just not to shock you, I also did like a TV sports show for seven years. Parallel to playing a professional, I did Wait, a sports so, show and I liked it. And I liked really? it. Really? So, so you were a TV yeah. caster prior to being uh, a pro, a pro player? Well, while being a pro in Israel and, and traveling to Europe, and I did a TV show, a sports TV show, and there have been days that I've been juggling between having a morning practice because eventually you are a professional, you have to get to morning basketball practices with the coach and the team, obviously, and then rushing to the TV studio to do the sports TV show. And then, you know, doing some, you know, uh, I don't know, uh, uh, the, the law school uh, related stuff, but it, it is doable. What I'm saying is, then again, I'm not bragging about it. I'm just saying that uh, the more, the more, you, the busier you are, the more you can accomplish and not vice versa. The busier no, you no. are, you can, you can squeeze it all and, and, and make it happen. Uh, no, absolutely. And I'm, I'm glad you brought this up because like when I, when I was looking at your background, I, I didn't bring it up because some people for, you know, there's some people who are sensitive about their backgrounds. And so I, I usually leave it to them to bring it up. But the reason why I, I wanted to bring it up because I said, oh, this makes a lot of sense. Uh, you know, I'll, I'll, you strike me as a very like down to earth and humble guy. So I'll brag on your behalf. Like, you know, a lot of the things that you've accomplished and done is nothing short of, of, you know, very impressive and amazing. I think Israel as a country is probably very proud to have you as like a citizen and of course as a leader on the innovations I will get into. But there's this concept of a talent stack. Uh, this is from a, a, an author and also a mentor of mine, Scott Adams, where if you take different talents, like maybe you're, you're okay at speaking, maybe you're okay at writing, separate, you're not going to be very world-class. But when you stack all of these things, you have this very unique talent stack you're like one and only. So for you, you know, you played professional basketball, which aside from the physical attributes, there's a lot of things you learn when we play collegiate oh, yeah. and professional levels, like the discipline, the habits, mindset. I think mindset is like the most power, powerful thing, you, you know, you get. Yes. Law school, all these different things. So this is really impressive talent stack. You know, this is like one of the reasons why I wanted to have you on the show is like when I was researching, I'm like, I'm like, this guy's got We'll talk about his fun. We got to talk about it a little bit about his background, and, you know. And, and, yeah, I think you. This is this is a very good point, actually. You know, one of the things that, and I'm very open about it. I've been like that uh, throughout the years. Is you know, you've been you mentioned psychology. You know, I, I'm I've been telling you know uh, for so many years that I, I did a, an amazing, amazing process uh, of uh, therapies uh, throughout the years, and not just therapy, but rather psychoanalysis. I did like mm. three or four years of three or four, oh, three times a week, like psychoanalysis, getting down deep into subconscious and analyzing dreams, which, you know, it was such a, my curiosity, basically, to getting to know myself. Now, when I'm talking about, you know, the ups and downs and, and you know, the, 
the, the waves that, that entrepreneurs are being shifted away, the frustrations, the, uh, the need to address the others and quite listen. People sometimes don't listen. They just like to get and get them. And they, you know, on the way to, uh, to become a successful startup companies, you truly need to listen and let people talk and, and understand the use cases and understand the unique business model. Those, I think, you know, to the extent that I can share some of my uh, uh, paths and, and challenges and ups and downs that I've gone through, I'm okay to talk to entrepreneurs and even indicate about myself some of my, you know, issues and challenges that I had to go through. And then you create partnerships. Partnerships are about relationship and about trust. It's, it's the bottom line of everything. You can fall in love with technologies, but if people eventually don't communicate on the same level and if they don't understand it, it's like, a bit the yin and the yang, you know, partnership. When we invest three, four, five million dollars into a company, we become partners. There's no other way to say, but rather get into the interpretation of what does it mean partnership, actually. Sometimes I need you, you the CEO, more than you need me. And there will be times that you will need me and my team more than you think. And these are the ups and downs, the dance that should be an equilibrium of, of, of understanding who we are, and how we act as people. Because if you only maintain on the, you know, professional level, execute, execution level, there's only, this is my own belief, there's only so much like a ceiling glass that you may not be able to go beyond that. And this is why I think in good cases, it's, it's the bottom line of successful startup companies, let it be in the medical space or let it be elsewhere, that you need to create that connection, emotional, psychological one between the team, between the people, between us as investors, board members, and the entrepreneurship team in order to be really successful. Oh, 100%. 100%. You know, there's something to be said about, you know, science can't explain everything. So science cannot explain the subconscious. Science can't explain, for example, um, certain energy, right? This is something, there's a company called the HeartMath Institute. They talk a lot about the uh, ability to get your heart and your brain in sync and creating a certain like magnetic field, which a lot of people, when they hear it, they say like, oh, this sounds like nonsense. No, it really is, you know, and I think that uh, I I feel like a lot of, at least here, I'll speak for the United States, entrepreneurship in general can be, and I, we're going to get into something political now, but you know, whatever it's, this, this is why people love the shows. I say things I probably shouldn't say. If you look <laughs> at um, the, the psychology, right? Not male and female, but like masculine, feminine, you and I were, were men, but we have masculine, feminine points to us, right? Entrepreneurship for the most part is a lot of it is very masculine ego driven, right? You know, with competition, aggressiveness and everything. I feel like a good balance though is to have that feminine side, which is more focused on intuition, right? Which is more getting involved with like the emotional side and asking like really deep questions. I think that the quality of your life is really reflected on the quality of questions you're asking yourself. And it sounds like you've done a lot of that yourself. Would you, would you agree with that? Yes, I think so. Basically, you know, being a professional basketball player, you you get the good stuff and the bad stuff being written on you, like in the papers, in TV shows, when you're in a good shape, you know, people are saying he's in a good shape when, when you're not and you're losing your confidence. So this is when you need to really, you know, get to, to the bottom of things and, and, and maintain, hang in there, not to, not to give up, which is a major part in entrepreneurship is not giving up, really, not giving up fundraising, not giving up looking for the specific use case, not giving up on finding the right strategic partners. It's not giving up. And this is, I'm not saying anything new. It's just, just a different way to say. It. But it's, um, I think the process that uh, basically 
you know, some of the companies may, may, may be able to understand, or some of the entrepreneurs may be able to understand, is that, uh, you know, the variety or the ability, like a new CEO of a very early stage company that we put in like a million or, or a million and a half dollars, you know, they need to do everything. They need to manage the IP, the marketing, the, you know, the, the R&D, the product market fit, the reimbursement, the regulation path. There's so much, and that's the beauty which I love in the medical space, in healthcare, in digital health, or medical devices, or bioconvergence. It brings is it brings all the life science uh, behind it. And you are right to some extent. You know, uh, science cannot explain everything, and science gets you as a, as an entrepreneur to only so much. You know, so many entrepreneurs they fall in love with a certain technology. I see that day in day out, and this is unfortunate. And they cannot. And this is where we come in, myself and my team, obviously, come into a play whereby we need to explain to them that technology and science, let it be science, you know, the best from the best research institute, whatever it may be, does not translate necessarily into a product. And product does not translate necessarily into a saleable, scalable, and sustainable, like the three supplements, the three S's of, 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 of a successful company. And those... You know, so many entrepreneurs, they think of, of the R&D. By the way, just the R&D within itself, you know, there's an R and there's a D and sometimes there's a small R and there's a small D and then a capital D. And it may take you like three to five years just to move from an R to a D or even more than that. What and are the three, where, can, you, can you touch real quick, what are the three S's of a successful startup? So uh, moving, moving from a, uh, a technology to a product, first of all, and then a product with the right use case, with the right business model. This is a major issue, let, let it be in... in you know, being discussed in digital health, you know, it is not necessarily so much the technology or the application. It is the finding the right business model to justify a sustainable company that, that doesn't need to fundraise again and again and again. And so many of the digital health companies eventually are navigating their way to find the right business model. So a business model in order to get there and to justify the existence of the company, you know, first of all, a product, once developing a product, let it be a software or whatever it may be, or a sensing capability needs to be saleable. First of all, someone needs to pay for that. When you start an R&D, entrepreneurs saying, you know, this is great, we can do that. But it's actually a technology looking for a solution, not a solution that is utilizing a technology to address a, mar a true market need. So those are words that we repeat, keep on saying to entrepreneurs as other VCs are doing. But being saleable is one thing. Being scalable, that you can scale with that and sustainable for a long period of time if you don't find the right business model, eventually you can come up with a, a software, you know, be able to sell it for fifty, sixty thousand dollars for any providers. But but then you become after you know after four or five years, you may be able to sell for I don't know a million, two million dollars. This will not be interesting to any of the VCs. You know, you want to build a unicorn, you want to build a company with you know two to ten to twenty, and becoming a, a company that you can sell for two hundred million, three hundred million dollars the minimum if you can. And this is why this is why. You know, when we work with mostly early stage companies, and this is this is where we're focusing on seed stage, A rounds and, and, and B rounds as well, but these are all early stage companies. This is not necessarily growth capital. So the, those, those uh, uh, you know, those verticals within the development of each and every companies are crucial to understand and dive deeply into them. Otherwise, if you're missing something about the business model, with all due respect to technology, you're not going to make it. And this is, this is a common sense. Everybody knows that. Yeah, no, I completely agree. And I think... Um, you know, before we get to, you know, cause I want to understand like your transition, like from pro basketball to, you know, the working world and then into venture capital. Yeah. I know you started Sonara in 2014, but I think this is, um, in my humble opinion, this is one of the reasons why if you look at the last five years, you know, if you look at big tech, 
Amazon, Microsoft, Apple, Google, you know, they're, they are tasked by their investors to grow. Google's not going to wake up one day and say, you know what, let's start making furniture. Like they they got to make a big bet. The big bet is healthcare. And I think that, be, you know, tech came to healthcare with its tech model thinking, oh, if we just have this really, really cool product. That's all we got to do. And it, a lot of them failed. Amazon failed in, in a couple of years. Google, I mean, no offense to the people at Verily. It's a great place to work if you're an engineer. In terms of making money and commercializing things, I don't really know what they've done. Um, and, and so, but now tech is having a second attempt. You know, Amazon acquired one medical um, Apple's, you know, doing these different partnerships. So now it's, you know, having a little bit of a different approach where it's like, it's not enough just to have a really good technology. It's just in any industry, but especially healthcare, you know? Yeah, yeah I agree. I agree. Yeah. So, this, so this, this is exactly what, what I was referring to. It's not, it's more than technology and it's more than a product. It's the, 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 eventually the business side of things and to be creative, try to be creative on the business side and listen carefully to those, you know, whoever is making the decision, let it be on the provider side, let it be on the payer side. Entrepreneurs, they need to truly listen and, and identify maybe a unique business model and not just to duplicate whatever was there. This, this, is, this is something that, you know, strong entrepreneurs bring to the table. I, I absolutely agree. Just uh, before we transition, I got to just bring this like full, full circle because you were saying like great entrepreneurs, they, they know how to sort of like listen. It seems like ask the right questions to identify things. There is a quote from The Godfather. I think is I'm almost certain it's The Godfather. I got to go back where. Uh, Michael Corleone was talking about his father, maybe his godfather too. And he said something like, you know, my father uh, once told me that um, the more I understand myself, the more I'll understand the world around me. And at that point, anything is possible. And I think that great entrepreneurs, especially if you look at like some of the biggest, biggest ones, like, you know, like Steve Jobs is maybe a good example of it, um, that this exercise and capability of asking yourself really good, hard questions and, and digging and finding the answer, practicing that on yourself makes it a lot easier for you to do that with customers, the market, with investors. And then you get to the source of truth. Like what, that's like the most important thing, you know, otherwise you're kind of being led by either your ego or like shiny, shiny objects in the market and stuff. And then I always see those companies fail. I don't know if you, you agree with that perspective though. Yeah, there's, I think, uh, Trying to maintain that same level, there's a, there's only so much that we can, you know, think as, as to ourselves as that we know it all. This is, it's not just that that we don't and, and we need to listen, but there are always changes in the marketplace. There are always, you know, competitions which we are co com competing companies. I would say that we are not aware of, you know. So in some cases we stumble into companies or we meet companies, you know, and they come to us, which is totally okay with that. Kind of, kind of generic approach of, you know, we should do that with, you know, software as a service, whatever it would be, the business model or, or the technology itself. And, and, and venture capitalists like myself would like to find a disruptive technology and disruptive team and, and really think that this is a diamond. This is truly a diamond that we would like to be part of. And sometimes it takes, like we did just now an investment in a company that is doing optimization for a, a company called Qlog that was doing optimization of, uh, of uh, a process processes in hospitals and, and turning hospitals into kind of a hospital readiness situation. Uh, it's, it's, it has a location uh, kind of a component into that within the hospital, does not connect to the EMR, to the clinical medical record. It's been implemented in like 30, 40 hospitals in Israel. And, and it took us some time as a team to understand the value and to meet the team again and again and to listen to the physician who is the CEO as well. Saying, you know, I, I went to medical school for 12, 15 years and about 50% of my time, 50% of my 
time is wasted on, on filling up the forms and checking up the surgery room, whether it was disinfected or not disinfected. And boom, all of a sudden, you know, after a few meetings, we, we decided to invest in that company and we thought it could be a diamond. I mean, we need to polish that and, and make sure that, you know, eventually there's a, a clear, uh, unique value proposition to some extent of us investing in that. But it's all, it's all as you said, it's, it's about a, a feeling. There, there's no certainties. There's no 100% you know, um, assurance that, that whatever we picked will be the most successful company. But it's the gut feeling and the chemistry. And then again, I'm, I'm emphasizing the chemistry and the relationship that you can create either as an entrepreneur or as an investor. It's always a dual relationship. When entrepreneurs come to us, I say, you guys should check Sonara. You guys run a due diligence on us, not just we on you. It's a, it's a dual communication. It's a dual process. You should, it's like even more than getting married to some extent. You know, it's like getting married has its, its unique boundaries, special, special boundaries, but Getting into a partnership with a VC for the next five, six years or whatever, the ups and the downs and the various interfaces that the teams need to address is, is quite fascinating for those who love it, like I do. Um, but it's the depth of relationship that eventually will define the success, aside from the, the uniqueness of the technology, which is a given, you know, in the early stage. Uh, absolutely. And, and probably a good transition. Um, you know, you founded Sonara Ventures in uh, in 2014 and yep. with with pretty impressive uh, joint venture partners with Philips and Teva. How, how exactly did all that get orchestrated? You know, and why, why did you pick to work with Teva and, and Philips? Because at least from what I understand, you guys focus on early stage. So I know you started uh, Sonar Capital, which we'll talk about, but Sonar Ventures, you focus on seed stage companies, specifically in med tech, digital health, and of course, on the bioconversion side. You know, how did all that come, come to be? Israel has, um, you know, about close to 2,000 life science companies out of Israel, like 1,800 to 2,000 life science, which is a huge amount of companies. And per, per square foot, it's a lot of, it's a lot of companies. <laughs> it's a lot of companies well, per square foot. Obviously not compared to the U.S., but, but you're right, you're right. To the size of the, to the density and population and patents per capita and whatever, th those are very impressive numbers. Um, and, and basically, some of those corporates like Philips and the others and, and, and Teva, even though Teva is, is, has a both Israeli and, and definitely a U.S. Uh, uh, been listed both in Israel and U.S. But it's, um, it's sometimes those corporates, they like to tap into the Israeli innovation and seeing what's happening on the ground, which is quite fascinating. You know, some corporate VCs have a charter to invest in like moonshots technologies. I would say, you know, it could be seven to 10 years down the road. Who knows what will come out out of it? Nonetheless, some of the other corporates, they would like to see the happening on the ground and being exposed to, you know, Philips is doing uh, obviously imaging technology, CTS, MRI and, and monitoring and, and connected care and many, many other things. Um, and, and basically back at the time, Philips, as well as Teva, they acknowledge Israel as being quite unique place to, to be, be part of the early ecosystem and the, the landscape. And the beauty was that actually they were not stepping on nobody's toes. So when you build such a JV, you know, we can say if you have only one player and companies would come to you and as an investor, you know, as a corporate, you say, yeah, we put in like whatever and we get like 20, 30 percent equity. And they they may feel that, you know, you may be kind of uh, planning like a not a takeover, but but coloring yourself as, as a under one corporate may be um, somehow like a threat to some entrepreneurs. Um, as if you complete the R&D with it, that imaging technology and you you immediately ending up yourself as a, as a Philips part of a Philips product or a Philips division. Like just saying, I'm just saying this was not the case. Nonetheless, the beauty in both Philips and Teva actually created a balance 
of you know creating a landscape, a platform of innovation, which is quite unique, loosely coupled to those corporates on one side, being able to get their support on drug development and drug, you know, various delivery platforms to cross the blood-brain barrier and deliver drugs to degenerative diseases such as Parkinson and Alzheimer, multiple sclerosis, which Teva came up with a Cupaxone drugs like 20, 25 years ago. And on the other, having a device company such as Philips and now also shifting obviously to, to Connected Care and others, uh, which they don't step on Teva's toes. So whatever project that we have invested in, not just synergistic to Teva, not just synergistic to Philips, but also some of those other uh, quite destructive technologies, like one of the companies that we invested in, a company called Nanodrops. These are drops in your eyes to replace lenses and glasses. And, and this is nothing has nothing to do neither with Philips nor with Teva. But they did come to us, those entrepreneurs, because they acknowledge that we as Sanara act as a platform of innovation. We give them a chance, work closely with them, trying to support them. Parallel to that, I've built, a, and, and as a team, we built a global advisory board, which I'm very proud. I'm obsessed about knowledge sharing, truly, I'm obsessed. I don't think that we know it all in Israel. We, we lack the understanding of a, a true product market fit in Israel. So we're coming up with the best technologies on one side to some extent, but on the other, as I've mentioned over and over again, I, hopefully I'm not repeating myself too much, but we in Israel lack the understanding of the U.S. market. And, and even though um, it, it is achievable to address and, and, and bridge those gaps, but we need to have the people. And I built in Sanara an advisory board of 117 people from the U.S., from uh, Europe, from Asia, from Latin America, that we can approach them and talk to them and, and understand you know, business models and go-to markets and, and regulation. And they are assisting us. So I think all in all, you know, it takes a village, as they say, and it does take a village. This, this is a, a beautiful sentence. It does take a village to build ecosystem around innovation. Just, just bringing in capital would not work. Just bringing in good, talented entrepreneurs would not fly. This is my own belief. I'm not saying that I'm, I'm necessarily right, but you need to build an ecosystem to support innovation, you know, capital, talent, strategic partners, knowledge, uh, go-to people. Uh, and, and be able to address uh, innovation in a bit more faster way than we typically do, you know, introducing companies and let them hit the wall, knocking on someone's uh, hospitals in Boston, coming in, hey, we're out of Israel, we have this amazing technology, nobody knows them and they need to prove themselves. But rather, vice versa, if you have someone, head of innovation in that hospital that already knows Sanara, knows that Sanara has been working with Philips and Teva, and we talk to them and we've been communicating and then we're sending two companies to that personal to that division, it's a totally different ballgame. No, I, 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 well said. And, and by the way, I, I agree with you on one on the knowledge sharing, but also on the side of like the partnership aspect. And again, I think like good questions are usually simple questions and there's, they're usually simple to, to ask, but they're not easy to answer. So like, what is a partnership? I think from the entrepreneurial standpoint, you know, a lot of uh, founders and entrepreneurs listen to the show. And the one thing that I, you know, look, me personally, I've not I've not raised a fund myself, you know, but I've dealt, I've been in the startup uh, world for long enough that I could say that like, look, if you're going to go get, you know, money is, money's a commodity. I know a lot of, a lot of founders in this market are like, it's definitely not a commodity, but it's still a, it's, it's still a commodity. And so I always tell founders like, look, if you're going to take a check from somebody, it's, it's not just the check. It's like, well, who's attached to that check? Like, what are they going to do for you? Like when times get hard, are they going to be somebody that you can go and like very openly and vulnerably, like get advice from, or are they going to lift you up or they guide you, or are they going to be a real pain? Right. Yeah. Sometimes I think that founders, they're very quick, not just to get money, but it's like, oh, this check is attached to this like 
really well-known person and that'll help me raise more money. But it's like, well, that check might also come with some things that you don't want to deal with. And you haven't like, you know, asked about, right. This is why, like, I think, I think oh, go yeah. ahead. Sorry. No, no, no. Uh, oh. just, just to comment on that, I think, Please, now yeah. it's become, you know, now money is not even commodity these days. It's quite tough really to fundraise. It was a commodity and I totally agree with you. But the thing is, you know, it's exactly that, 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 that eventually if, if entrepreneurs and, and founders, uh, basically uh, just get, you know, money just like that and don't scrutinize carefully enough. It's it, it just not the, not just potentially might be, potentially might be stopping, stumbling into a world, but specifically now in this time, people are keep, keep on saying, you know, to LPs and investors in the fund, even myself, this is, th these are challenging times. This is why it's actually one of the best time to build good companies. And I strongly believe in that. And it took me some time initially when I heard about it, I was like, it's just an expression, honestly saying so. I, I, you know, I heard it a few times. Only in this circle, only this round, I truly acknowledge why is it because of exactly what you and I just been talking about. There's a, there's a, it's a more settled atmosphere whereby it's not just taking money. Like people are scrutinizing one another now. People are sensing one another. People are afraid. Exactly. You know, both to exactly. put capital. We we put all of the. Uh, I don't want to say the not just the ego and the bullshit aside, sorry for saying, but it's it's the uh, sorry, you can you can say the, that on this show. But it's it's the ability to run a thorough due diligence and to think uh deeper and to, to take decisions in a in a different atmosphere, not just run and we have to deploy this capital and let's just do it and whatever, but rather being very cautious brings us all, both entrepreneurs as well as investors, to a different uh, reference point within ourselves, within those partnerships to deploy capital more carefully and to truly understand what does it mean. So I think there's a different pace of doing uh, those deals now and, and doing uh, the business, which on one hand, we still need to run to the marketplace and not waste too much money, but structuring the deals, I think it's, it's a different atmosphere. And this is why I think we're more careful these days and hopefully we'll be more successful coming up from that so-called uh, recession or challenging time to a, to a different different uh, scale of operation. Uh, absolutely. And I was going to say, um, this is going to be, I'm going to just forewarn you, this is this next question I have, it's a little, has a little bit of an introduction, but I kind of want to uh, hear you kind of uh, uh, dive deep on this. So one of the things that I find fascinating about your background um, is that this happened, you know, after you established Sonara Ventures and, you know, Philips and Teva uh, uh, did the joint venture with you is a couple years, uh, I think two years later, uh, you became the uh, chairman for the Life Science Advisory Board for the uh, Israeli Export Institute. Okay. Yeah. And for those who are listening, um, I didn't mis mispronounce that. It is the Israeli Export Institution who, whose whole purpose is to say, hey, how do we take great companies and innovations from Israel and partner with private, uh, pri private industry and export it all over the world? Right. Which I think it would be, yeah. it's like, it's like the best, that must be like the best, best job to have. Cause you're essentially seeing so many different companies and you're just thinking, how do we make these global companies? Right. How has that role helped you at Sonara Ventures in terms of like expanding the depth and the, 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 the breadth of, of, of startups you're seeing and your skill set? Like how, I feel like those have gone hand in hand so well, but if you can kind of, you know, talk about that, cause that's a very, it's very rare to meet someone who's in venture capital, who also holds not only a government position, but like probably the most important position for life sciences in the country. This is a, they're all complementary to one another. And, and, you know, I may have mentioned to you, I'm not sure that, you know, those, the things that I was able to touch and really experience uh, 
also, I may have said it before, you know, helping, there was a point of time that I've been helping the World Bank, the venture capital team of the World Bank, the IFC in Washington, of building up innovation platforms like the Tech Emerge platform, which we built in India with uh, hospital being supported by the World Bank. And then we took it down to Brazil in Sao Paulo. So I think that that actually brings out not just the, um, the perspective, but rather the ability to understand that we need to work together globally. And this is why, you know, COVID took place now and everybody acknowledged that we, this is my own belief that knowledge sharing platforms, not just stumbling into one another in conferences once a year. There are technologies that are supportive of knowledge sharing platforms. There are various kind of companies, startup companies that are now creating and understanding there's, there's, there's got to be a way to develop a drug uh, in, in, a, in, a, in an expedited path to, to that development. Let's, let it be seven to eight years as opposed to 15 years and, you know, $2 billion of, of uh, capital being deployed into that. So this is, this is actually the, going back to the Export Institute, these are all complementary, all of those platforms, innovation platforms, and whatever I've been doing on behalf of the Export Institute, which is a semi-governmental position, I've been working closely with the Ministry of Economy in Israel and like 30 to 40 commercial attaches around the world, invited into conferences. I've been speaking in various conferences about the Israeli landscape in digital health and others. Um, having some national booth, you know, at the HIMS, for instance, and uh, which was an initiative that we have launched, having like 30, 40 startup companies in digital health related, coming out on, on under the export in, the Israeli Export Institute operation. So on one hand, you create a critical mass of companies going to the HIMS for that matter. And on the other, on a case by case, we're trying to develop some kind of a strategy. You know, what are those companies that we have in Israel? What are the challenges that they are falling into? Is it when they go to the Asian market, when they go to the US market, is it, you know, lack of capital? Is it strategic partnership? Is it regulation? Can we help them in addressing that? Can we help them in deploying, deploying capital on behalf of the Israeli government, the Innovation Authority, which is doing wonders for so many years and companies, you know, we've mentioned uh, Mazor Robotics uh, for that matter and other companies that came out of Israel and was, were sold to, to uh, corporates uh, for sometimes over a billion dollar and even more than that, obviously. But it's, it's the, uh, the, the ecosystem with it, which I've mentioned before on one hand and the ability to support those companies, it's all actually complementary. It's all helping Sanara, you know, for introducing delegations that we've been hosting, delegations from Japan, from the US, from Europe, through the Export Institute. Eventually, there's so much knowledge resides within the Israeli landscape. As opposed to what I said before, you know, not just the product market fit, but let's say we would, we were looking to do something in oncology. And I've been asking my CTO, go and talk to this, these two CEOs within the Israeli landscape, because they already did a deal with, you know, the Eli Lilies of the world, with the Pfizer's of the world, the Genentech of the world, or the Sanufis. And, and how you structure a deal, a licensing deal, if you want to go into some kind of, uh, of uh, a licensing mode. So there's a lot of knowledge, not just clinical knowledge, but rather, you know, how to do those deals in a better way than it was done like 10, 15 years ago. This is why I feel the, the local ecosystem, but also the global ecosystem, we have to play a different ball game. We have to be uh, more tuned to one another. And, so, and I, I totally understand, I'm not naive, I totally understand there are egos related, there are interests related, obviously, but there are platforms which are building up a knowledge sharing platform, one of which, which I talk again and again about is one, I hope it's still active in Norway. But this is a good example. There was one night like five years ago that I was searching to just to improve one of my presentation about uh, uh, healthcare innovation. And I've been searching for something for open innovation platform. And all of a sudden I stumbled into a company in Norway 
which is called Induct. I'm not sure that they are still active, but they've been active for quite some time. Whatever they do, it's a connected uh, web-based platform connecting 81 hospitals in Norway. And once there is an implementation of innovation, both technology as well as the process, as well as a you know uh, uh, payment potentially. And for, is- for instance, one of the examples that I remember in Oslo University Hospital, they were able to cut down diagnostic of breast cancer from from uh, diagnostic to treatment from 12 weeks to one week. So imagine how many lives you will be able to save. What's the you know cost saving related to that? Once they did so, utilizing a new technology and a new process, they put it on this Induct web-based platform and they did share it with 80 other hospitals in Norway. So there's no need to invent the wheel again and again, even though I'm a venture capitalist and I like those destructive inventions, right? But on the other hand, parallel to that, knowledge sharing platforms such as the Induct, and this has been supported by the Norwegian government. So obviously there are interests and hospitals which may not want to cooperate with one another because it's their own knowledge. But once you get some kind of accreditation by the government and you get the incentives to do so, and all of a sudden it becomes the best practice or all of a sudden it becomes the gold standard of, you know, this hospital, like up in the north of Israel, all of a sudden they, they found a new process, let it be in oncology or in something else, and then one in the south of part of Israel will adopt it. And with that, we can do so much more, not just to save people's life, which is, you know, the number one mandate for physicians and all of us in the industry, or obviously to make money on the other end, or to save money, depends on the technologies. But these, these are the things that I believe will expedite as well as, you know, sharing the data in some cases. And despite the restrictions and despite the, uh, uh, sorry, despite the, uh, uh, the privacy issues and the HIPAA compliance and all those things, I take those into consideration. But still, there are, uh, there's an ability to do knowledge sharing platform. I'll give you, if I may, I'm, I'm enthusiastic about it. If no, I, may, I want ch- you to. No, absolutely. And, and just a quick, yeah, well, actually, you go first and then I'll go because there's, there's a follow-on well, so I want to ask you about. This. Go for it. One more, we might be thinking my, about the one, same thing. One more example that just to illustrate whatever I'm referring to. I have a friend that uh, I got to know like uh, maybe three, two or three years ago in Paris, in one of the conferences. Her name is Victoria. She, she's Danish. She built a company, startup company, one of those knowledge sharing platforms, which I was not aware of, but I got so excited because it's exactly was addressing whatever I was, I was, you know, I was talking just now. She actually, uh, she had a, a rare autoimmune disease, I think, the, around the age of 30, and it was threatening her life. And eventually, after a long process, she was able to find one clinic with one physician that was doing a research, 27 years research, of uh, about these uh, experimental drugs and eventually saved their lives. When they start to speak about it, uh, eventually, they, they decided to collaborate, and she was, you know, she, she, she's okay now. But that... that uh, uh, discussion actually led to the understanding that actually there's been seven of those places worldwide which were not aware of one another. And actually, when she introduced them, after she got to know that fact, and they started to speak with one another, and they were actually searching and researching for that uh, rare autoimmune disease um, with different focus and different aspects of that. And they've been to- te- talking to one another and eventually saying, you know, if we would have been working together, it would have taken us seven years as opposed to 27 years to, that, to get to that experimental drug. And I heard that story. Now she's, she did a, 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 a startup. She built a startup in Europe, which is actually connecting research institution and helping them. Exactly that. This is what I'm talking about. But it's not just a startup. It's not, I'm talking about on the government level, on corporates level, on, on, you know, organization and others. 
that, that this is these are just examples and this is why I'm so passionate about it regardless to my venture capital uh, uh, investment about us as an industry and our contribution will be uh, much higher and will be eventually helping one another this local village human global village by by acknowledging the fact that knowledge sharing res, resides within us let it be the Israel ecosystem the global ecosystem the European one talking to one another, on the parking zone or whatever diseases could really, really be in a different level than we do today. No, this was a long pitch. I apologize. No, 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 no. Don't, there's no need to apply. Hey, I had you on the show. People want to hear from you, right? Um, the question I was going to ask is, so like, I, I love everything you just said, and I, I completely agree. I think there's something magical that happens when you get, when you receive certain information or knowledge, right? Your exposure to it and the level of awareness that opens up. It's kind of, you know, this is why I tell people, I'm like, you know, you need to read very broadly and read more books faster. Like, you know, there's a Pareto principle you can apply to books, you know, 20% of the whole, you get 80% of, of, of the, of the value. Cause it's, a, I feel like knowledge sometimes like, let's say you're in a dark room. I think this is why, like, I think therapy is really good or coaching. You can be in this dark room and you're looking for a switch to turn on. That knowledge allows you to guide your hand to find that switch sooner and flip it on and find all these things in that room that already existed. You just didn't know. Um, the uh, founder of Brain Lab, uh, Stefan Verschmeier, uh, was on the show recently. I haven't published this episode yet, but he said something very interesting. He said that for every single, every single problem in the world, by the fact that it exists, the solution already exists. By the fact that the problem already exists. And I think that knowledge is the, kind of the key to, do, to unlocking that. The question I was going to ask you is that there was somewhere that I was, I was, I was reading uh, in my research that you started this, I think it was a, a, a tech emerge platform. Am I correct in saying that? Yeah, with the World Bank, yeah. Yeah. Did that happen after you found this, uh, this, this Norwegian uh, one? Or like, how, how did that come about? Like, you know, so, tell us a little bit about so, that. So you, you've been saying about us and I've been, you know, also addressing your question about us finding ourselves, you know, in, in those various... Uh, converging uh, uh, verticals within our lives eventually. So the World Bank actually, aside from looking for equity investments in Israel, you know, for those to address uh, uh, growth markets, we started uh, back at the time with uh, uh, um, the head of the venture capital team, an amazing friend of mine called Nikunj and his number second in command named Ruzgar, both amazing people who've been running the venture capital team for the IFC, for the International Finance Corporation. We've been contemplating about a, a platform for innovation, to embrace innovation. It was decided that it would be in India. And eventually the World Bank is supportive of, you know, Indian hospitals like, uh, I don't want to quote anything, but I think about $2 billion every year, like designated to life science investment. In some cases, it has been like $2 billion, you know, for infrastructure hospitals in growth markets, such as in India, or supporting by giving them loans uh, uh, on behalf of the World Bank. And, the close relationship with the World Bank of uh, hospitals in India, like Apollo, Fortis Max, and others. Uh, this is when we went down to India, uh, my friend and I, Ruzgar, and, and actually kind of started what is called Tech Emerge today and, and built a platform to bring in, to do, you know, call for information of uh, 400 companies worldwide to address local needs. Could be cervical cancer. Uh, women in India are just dying because of distances and the inability to come to, the, to, to do the test again and again, malaria telemedicine, whatever it may be that addresses those markets. And eventually we, uh, we brought and we called upon 400 companies worldwide and we scrutinized them and eventually had been chosen like uh, 40 companies that were chosen to come to meet the Indian hospitals, all of which supported by the World Bank. They knew us. We, 
we introduced them to, we brought in a few go governments to build like a donors fund to subsidize and to incentivize those hospitals to do pilots in a faster way, you know, not to wait for 12 months, but rather if you do it within the next, the pilot within the next six, six months, $300,000, whatever, you get 50% discounts uh, or 50%, sorry, uh, subsidies from, from this donors fund. Uh, the Israeli government has also participated, the Finnish government, if I'm not mistaken, and, and, and others. So we had some money to subsidize and accelerate the adaptation process. But it was amazing, I have to say, when we eventually it took us some years to build it up. And eventually there was an event in, in, in Delhi, in India, that we came in and, and I was, I had almost tears in my eyes. I, I've been looking into 40 tables, you know, hospitals and entrepreneurship teams from New Zealand, Spain, Germany, Israel, U.S., been sitting together and presenting to the Indian hospitals innovative technologies which are out there. There's no need to, you know, this is not early stage companies. Those companies were on commercial phase already. And they, they, they utilize that platform to show the Indian hospitals what they can do and help them. And basically it's a win-win for both. Eventually, I think there's been like 25 pilots that we did in, in, a, in a India, if I'm not mistaken about the numbers, about at least 15 commercial agreements came from solutions to save people and to kind of cut down the costs just by building up an innovation platform and introducing them and matchmaking them. And later on, we took it down to Brazil, to Sao Paulo. And I think after that, it grew up also to Africa and a few other places. So this is when I'm talking about global innovation platform. It, it is doable. It needs persistence and not to give up and, and continue more and more. It took us like three years to build that platform. But eventually, you know, when you can embrace those technologies by, you know, by a non-organization on behalf of the World Bank, on behalf of Apollo in India, then again, it's, it's, it's doable. You just need to insist on, on building that up. If you build it, they will come. As they say in the Kevin Costner movie in the Fields of Dreams, if you build it, they will come. If you build those platforms, the startups and the technologies and the solutions will eventually come. Yeah, absolutely. But with good marketing, the very important. Because <laughs> I always, yes. I always debate this with my friends in Silicon Valley, like because they're very big on the if, the if you build it, they will come. I'm like, yes, but you have to market it too, because otherwise, <laughs> it's going to take a long time. You know, okay. before I want to talk a little bit about Sonara's uh, like investment thesis and and some of the uh, uh, details of the fund. But I have a book recommendation to you if you haven't read it already, but I think you'd really enjoy it. So, are you familiar with uh, the technologist Marshall McLuhan? He did the whole uh, the medium is the message. Have you heard of this uh, Marshall McLuhan? So no. Marshall McLuhan was um, uh, he he wrote uh, about technology and and the the uh, effect of media on human society over fifty years ago. He was right about everything. I mean, this guy was brilliant. But he wrote a book, and I'll I'll send it. To, I'll I'll take get the link and send it to you. Called the Global Village, and so but this is before the internet. And his whole thing is like at some point, modern society will be connected as a global village, right? To share information, influence each other, so on and so forth. And based on a lot of things you you talked about, I think uh, you got to read that book. You'll love it, especially as a technologist and everything. And we keep talking about you know like it it takes a village. The global village is definitely a concept like you you know you should learn learn about. I'll send it to you. So yeah, yeah. But you know, real but, quick, just wanted. Oh, go ahead. Sorry. No, what I'm saying is that I, I'm I'm. This is parallel to being a venture capitalist. There's, there's so much that could be done to accelerate and help venture capital investment as well. And those were just examples of things that we do parallel on behalf of the Israeli government, on behalf of the World Bank, whatever it may be. But uh, I'm I'm as as you can hear, I. I'm a strong believer, and specifically, that is a good timing because we've been hit with the COVID-19 as, as unfortunately, 
so many people passed away and, and you know, hospitals in so many places are still bleeding from, from that pandemic. And unfortunately, we may, you know, in, in a few years time, we may get to something of that nature again. We have to act differently. We cannot just keep on duplicating the status quo. We should not, not in life science, not in life science when we're talking about people's lives. Everybody has a father, a mother, a, a sister or a child. We cannot duplicate the status quo again and again and hope for the best. We need to change the status quo and then hope for the best. Let me, yeah, and, and let me ask you about that. And by the way, I want to be mindful of time because it is late there. Are, you, are we good on time? You know, yeah. you, you do it okay? You're having fun. You're having fun. <laughs> so, so I'm, I can't reveal the guest yet, but I'm having someone on who used to be in our industry, uh, COO, CTO in robotics, and he, he's now in a different industry. And we had this discussion where he said, yeah, he's like, you know, Omar, I hate to say it. He's like, you would think that there's a lot of great innovation in healthcare, but when you compare it to other industries, it's like, not at all. And there, and, and I, me personally, I won't, I won't mention companies or anything because people will figure out who I'm talking about. I feel like there is a duplication of status quo so often this in this industry, at least the last ten or fifteen years. There's certain technologies. Again, I'll describe it. You'll probably know what I'm talking about. Certain technology comes out, changes the paradigm of how a therapy is done, a procedure, etc. And then there are ten or fifteen other companies that come out replicating the exact same technology with just tiny incremental benefits. How do we get out of this as a life science industry? Because I feel like maybe 10 years ago, that work where, you know, you could be a second or third company in the market, have a little incremental benefit. And it's like, well, one of the big strategics will buy us and we'll have a good exit. You can't, you can't that doesn't work anymore. How do we get out of this mentality and culture as, a, as an industry? Yeah. Just for me to explain, when I was saying not to duplicate the status quo, this is not so much on the technology side, even though I, I agree with you. In some cases, the no, it's, it goes beyond more, that though, right? It's yeah, not no, just that it's, it's a mentality, uh, everything. It's it's the conservative market. It's the infrastructure, the providers, the payers, the, everybody who plays in that. Uh, you know, the entrepreneurs are trying to change the status quo. In most cases, maybe, maybe they did not bring the best or the most disruptive technologies, but duplicating the status quo, I'm talking about governments, I'm talking about corporates, I'm talking about hospitals, I'm talking about, you know, conferences, um, you know, join forces in some conferences, like in Israel, I, I was trying to initiate, like to merge the three major conferences in Israel and to create the JP Morgan of Israel, instead of having, you know, people flying into Israel, like what, two, three times a year, there's no way they're gonna come to, you know, a medical conference in Israel. So this, this is what I'm thinking about, about the, the options of, of creating a critical mask and, and changing the status quo, whatever, governments, corporates, hospitals, and others, this, this is an entrepreneurship, uh, you know, within the entrepreneurship landscape, I did see, I did see every now and then some some solutions, but it's just they did not prepare their homework quite well. I don't think that they came up with, you know, we're going to duplicate it and be succeeded. I think that they just came up with some kind of innovation and they did not do uh, do their homework quite well and understanding the competition and, and who is out there and, and try to come up with a better, unique value proposition. But it does happen every now and then, you know, you see... You know, we've been seeing companies for optimization of uh, clinical studies. I've been seeing quite a few companies on optimization of clinical studies. Um, and they, they, each and every one of them has a, a strong belief that whatever they present, you know, maybe from their own expertise or experience within some pharma companies, this could be the best solution because their pain and the solution that came as a result of that pain is, is something that they believe quite strongly. Maybe it's not disruptive enough. Maybe it's not going to be successful. But, um, you know, I'd rather to see people inventing and creating and trying to come back again and again. What we're trying to do, and you 
asked me a little bit about our strategy at Sanara. We're trying to bring value. I have a team of in the two funds of 12 people and venture partners in the US and in Asia. Um, um, my partner in the US, Andre, and, 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 and my partner in, in, in China, Haisong, and my partner in Europe, uh, two partners in Europe, uh, Daniel and Effie, uh, and the team in Israel, obviously. What we're trying to do is, is, is even if we do not invest, we're trying to give like our a feedback, a strong feedback as to what those companies should be doing. And hopefully they will come back to us within three to six months or whatever. And they will. And in most cases, they did come back differently and they did check and they did learn and they did come up with a new, you know, kind of a validation of such and such or thoughts, food for thoughts as, as to f some feedbacks. I think this is our job, not just to invest and send companies the other that we do not invest in, you know, send them their way, but rather, you know, contribute to the industry, the knowledge and, and, and sometimes the mistakes and make sure that they get a, a strong feedback. And this is why I feel Sanara has a good reputation by entrepreneurs saying, you know, we were here like three, four months ago when we decided to come back. And even though we said no in the initial phase, it may be different. Yeah. And, you know, maybe, and I was going to say this, is, I want to ask this specifically about Sanara, um, you know, uh, with Philips and, and Teva as the joint venture, you know, I know that you focus a lot on med tech and digital health, but the part that I want to talk about, again, theme of this, of this whole uh, talk here, a lot of it was essentially convergence of knowledge, technology, everything is this concept of bioconvergence, right? And, you yeah. know, you spoke, you spoke about it um, uh, recently. I, I can't remember where it was, but you were talking about the idea that you, you cross the frontier of biology using, other disciplines of converging them. But can you talk a little bit like what does bioconvergence mean to you? And why is that something that an LP should be interested in having in their portfolio of investments? Well, it's a tough one. Basically, you know, with venture capital, it's a high risk, high reward, high risk, high reward play. You know, this is to start with. As a venture capitalist, you take risk. It's not a, a CD or whatever that you put in the bank and you know the, the interest. But uh, and bioconvergence technologies, and, and, and it, we, we grew on that, I have to say. It wasn't easy initially to swallow and digest when the Israel Innovation Authority came up and said bioconvergence parallel to digital health will be the next revenue generator in the life science industry for, for the state of Israel. And eventually, then we look into four or five of our investments, such as the company that I've been telling you about, Nanodrops, the drops in your eyes to replace lenses and glasses. Basically, there's a laser flash, flash that creates a pattern on your cornea, which is the physics component. And then the drops is biology, which activates that solution for myopia and presbyopia. But it's the convergence of biology and physics that enabled that disruption to come to, into play. Without the convergence of these two, there would not be such an amazing solution. This could be implemented in drug delivery. This could be implemented in, in diagnostic. Eventually, you may be able to see a diagnostic device like one that we invested in can do, you know, uh, like a PCR, you know, uh, uh, diagnostics of, uh, of uh, germs or viruses, but a sample to result within like a minute or two. That's like a PCR instead of like two hours, four hours, whatever it may be. The technology behind it, that, that within that diagnostic device is actually a bioconvergence technology. It's a manipulation that we do on biology through some physics uh, equations and others, but the enabling technology within those products or, or uh, uh, software computational biology for that matter would be defined as bioconvergence. And it could be tiny robots uh, for drug delivery and crossing the blood-brain barrier to treat the, uh, you know, degenerative diseases, or it could be 
uh, 3D printing of organs. So the implementations and applications of bioconvergence may be in different verticals, in different fields, by the way, not just in healthcare. I know that Merck, I've been reading a piece of, of uh, the CEO of Merck uh, uh, saying, you know, that's the next big thing in, in, in the medical space. Uh, bioconvergence, the ability, and those are, you know, science fiction to some extent. And going back to yeah. your question, we as, as venture capitalists, we need to mitigate to some extent and not just to deploy capital in fascinating technologies which are lacking, you know, the science behind it or lacking, you know, the validation of such and such in order to bring it to the marketplace. But on the other, if they do, those would be, might be huge exits because there's a huge barrier to entries in those very destructive, uh, complicated technologies, which no, as, as you've been mentioning, you know, the other players will not be able to duplicate the same technology. If it's a truly a bioconvergence, there will be a unique barrier to entry, a unique know-how, which will not be easy to duplicate. And as such, corporates will eventually buy those technologies. This is our belief even in some yeah. cases in an earlier stage than, than others, because the depth of the technologies and the disruptiveness that they can bring to the marketplace. Yeah, I agree. And I think, um, you know, this is kind of like splitting hairs, but I think, you know, based on what you're, what you're saying, you know, the way I see, if you look at biotech and medtech, I, I kind of feel like medtech, medtech is obviously, you have to have some hardware, some, some device that's involved, but it's enabled, you know, through data yeah. algorithms and everything. That's medtech, you know? So like, there are some companies I work with, they're not medtech. They're a medical device, but they're not medtech. Biotech, you know, and, and the other side on medtech is that you can you can have something, like let's say a surgical robot, for example, that works, yeah. but like you still have some flexibility to say, oh, we deployed it, it's being used, but like there's some ways we can prove it. In biotech, it's, it's very like black and white. It's like either the science works or it doesn't. Would you describe, it feels like you're taking, it, you take like, the certainty that's needed from biotech, but with some flexibility they have in medtech and putting those things together. And that's kind of like a, like a, like a device or innovation, like this company that you mentioned with the eye drops, right? What are some other examples of like bioconvergence companies, maybe that your fund has invested in, but they're, they're like really, really good examples of not just a great investment, but like groundbreaking investment, you know, for innovation. I will give another example from one of the, one of the companies that we did invest in a company called Onco Decipher. Um, this is actually a company that we've spotted like four, five years ago out of Tel Aviv University. And it's uh, actually has to do with oncology and, and the silent mutations. Typically, you know, in the process of, of uh, cancer tumors uh, or oncology, uh, when, when people are being uh, checked to see if they are uh, properly fit for uh, immunotherapy, you know, you send, you send the samples to uh, companies such as Foundation and others, Foundation One and others. And basically then eventually at the end of the day, merely like uh, I would say 10, 10% of the people are relevant for immunotherapy because of those uh, tests being conducted on the genetic side. Now, Onco Decipher, the company that we invested in, still in the early stage, I have to say, not from the fund, but rather from, from our uh, incubator fund, not from the uh, post-incubation fund, Sonar Capital, is fascinating with doing, because they are doing a, a, a unique, unique set of algorithms to understand the, the outcomes of silent mutations, whereby are not being scrutinized today. These, is, these are the peripheries of science or the, of the practice of medicine or the treatment of medicine in immunotherapy at the moment. And eventually they can predict whether a specific patient, you know, will, will develop or will have a relapse of a cancer tumor. And the application behind it is to allow pharma companies to do indication expansion. So to treat, basically, instead of those 10% that I've mentioned before, maybe to treat 13 or 14% of the population through those enabling tools and, and sophisticated computational biology, 
by the understanding of you know the mechanism and the metabolism within those um, uh, silent mutations, which are not being under the radar of no one's today. That's the beauty. This is something that we love. Whether it's going to be successful or not, I'm not sure. I may, I don't want to say it again, but like uh, getting excited, you know, sometimes being in that field, you know, I got the proof of concept of three silent mutations that we have looked into like four or five months ago for my CTO. I got a text message, a WhatsApp message, and I read it again. I just called him up and said, is this finally after four years, identifying that in a TTO of Tel Aviv University, licensing that, building up a company, investing a million dollar check, well, basically deciding on the first three mutations and running using CRISPR, the first uh, ever for this company, the proof of concept. And eventually we were able to reduce the expression of those, uh, of what was about to become a cancer tumor with existing drugs. And I told him, is it is it like truly a proof of concept? He said, it is, my CTO, it is, Dr. Leran Toledo. And I, I was so excited, you know, whether it's going to be successful or not, but it's only through that very unique algorithm and very sophisticated algorithm and big data that we now these days are able to give a chance to that technology and so many other companies and startups and VCs, you know, through unique sets of algorithm and, and, and AI. Now we are able to give a chance to things which we were unable to do, let's say, five, six years ago. Yeah, that's amazing. And I think it's, um, I think it's, I tell people, you know, it's a, it's, I think it's such an exciting time to be in our industry because, again, like theme of this talk is convergence, but, you know, you have, um, you know, tech entering in, which is not just going to bring different different types of innovation, but like different, you know, different ways of thinking of how do we sell and market with customers? How do we drive customer success, right? Because it's not enough just to have really good technology. You have to deploy it to the user and the, yeah. the benefit, the benefit, what's or what I feel like makes healthcare so unique but difficult is we all create products that's going to benefit a patient, but the patient's not using it. There's an intermediary, whether it's a nurse or a physician, everything. So it makes it more interesting. Um, but then also we have like, of course, like LLMs, machine learning, uh, not that machine learning, but uh, large language models like ChatGPT that are available now. And so who knows like how certain med tech companies are going to use that, right? To develop certain, you know, certain technologies, innovations right now. Um, it, you know, you're going to LSI Europe, uh, soon. We talked about it's, it's such a great conference. And again, I'm, I'm going to, I'm going to, uh, pressure you to, to try and make sure to come to LSI USA next year. Cause it's even. Well, LSI Europe is great, but I don't want to take anything away from there. But I love LSI USA. Um, going to LSI Europe, like what are the kind of things that you're sort of, is there anything specific that's sort of top of mind for you that you're looking for? Um, you know, what's, what's kind of got your attention these days? Basically, you know, some, some of those conferences, they, they provide the true value. I, I'm going to be coming to LSI Europe with uh, one of our portfolio companies that we invested in the fund in Serana Capital, a company called CV8. It's a stroke detection company, actually. And they are doing, uh, actually, before a CT scan, you know, people are getting stroke. And, and by the way, now in Asia, I came back, uh, uh, I had the, a trip or two to, to Asia, and I've been hearing about a new phenomenon of uh, young adults, like at the age of 40, who are getting stroke, typically, you know, considered to be like elderly people and whatever, not, not necessarily in all of the cases. But, but people are getting stroke and eventually being diagnosed with a stroke. I mean, if you have your lips swelling down, you know that there's a stroke situation. And even in the... You know, the EMS services, they will refer you hopefully to the right hospital who can do thrombectomy and maybe uh, uh, treat you properly in, in, the, in the best manner of time. Nonetheless, in so many cases, people go to the ER in various places on, on the planet and eventually they wait till a CT scan has been, has been, uh, uh, been taken. And only then they've been diagnosed with a stroke. And, and, and in some cases, this is way too late because, you know, 
in a strong situation, time is brain. You have like three hours to three and a half or four hours the latest uh, in order to treat the brain. So with that, you know, both uh, the EMS services, knowing if this is a stroke situation and definitely in the ER before, um, before the CT scan has been, has been held, if you can put an app on, on the patient's a, a, a face and like a nurse talk to him and say, hey, can you touch your nose? Can you smile? And even, if, if, even though if the human eye will not be able to see the asymmetrical movement of our muscles, that AI system of CV8 will be able to, within five to 10 seconds, to tell the physician or the nurse, there's a stroke situation here, you know, send him quickly now, not wait two or three hours to the CT scan and potentially do a thrombectomy or treat him with a drug. Um, this is one of our uh, companies that are now doing, uh, conducting uh, clinical studies, both in, in Barcelona and in the US. And uh, I find it uh, quite interesting because uh, they are about to start a fundraising process in the next few months. Um, and, and I thought, you know, one of my, my goals, aside from uh, speaking that conference, is to, to start to talk to some VCs and potentially to some strategic partners and others who might be interested in such a solution. So maybe this is merely just an example of, of one of our investments. But I honestly believe, you know, in some cases, the more you talk and, and the more you uh, shape and iron the offering as a startup company with those VCs, you know, uh, and, and others, this is something that you have to take into consideration as, as six to eight months, which were typically, you know, an estimated time for a, a fundraising process. Now it may not be enough. So you have to build those relationships, meet them, this, this VC, maybe a year in advance, present them, then come up and say, hey, we have achieved that milestone and that milestone. Now we are here. And going back to what I said before, those relationships, you know, building up the trust, not just within six months or three months and getting a term sheet. This will not be enough these days. And I recommend to those entrepreneurs and startups, you know, to, you know, to, to do the efforts and to take those, uh, the, the means and the resources into consideration of, even if they're not starting right here, right now, uh, fundraising process, but they come and they talk and they build up the relationship and, and they meet and they get the feedbacks and they come again to another conference after, you know, a few months and they do present the outcomes. This is much better off and has better chances to fundraise than rather just and, you know, give it like a, a quick chance as we used to do, like uh, up to a year or a year and a half ago. Those are cycles. Uh, CV, um, um, the, sorry, the VC uh, cycle is always cyclical and, and this is a nature. But when you are within the within those cycles, you, you need to adjust. Uh, we as investors and so as companies, and they need to mm -hmm. react differently to build up those relationships. And, and come again and not to be afraid to be rejected in the first time and come again with better results and better outcomes and better understanding of the marketplace. You know, I absolutely agree. And I think that like, this is uh, one thing that a lot of founders, you know, so I, I work with a lot of CEOs and startups uh, in their fundraising process. Like my very, very, very first company I worked with, which I always point to as a great example, because they did everything they were supposed to, because they have a great CEO is uh, Moon Surgical. And, you know, Moon, uh, you know, they raised $30 million as a Series A. Then recently, not only did they raise $54 million, they got Fred Mall, who's the founder of Intuitive on their board. NVIDIA and Sophie Nova uh, Partners led their, their Series B. But I think part of the reason why is just like, you know, there's a lot of skepticism around their technology at first because it's like, oh, it's another robotic company. But because they were very proactive engaging with the market, you know, not only just posting randomly, you know, posting on social media, but going on podcasts, you know, allowing time for people to 
digest and understand what they're doing and also showing the, the, the traction. Right. Exactly. I th- and I think like for, you know, I tell um, founders all the time, cause sometimes like it's hard to raise money only on the innovation alone. It's like, look, put yourself in the, in the shoes of a, of a VC who's, who's trying to deploy money effectively for an LP. One of the things that they want to do is de-risk it. How do you de-risk something? Show that you have some market traction. And a lot of times, you know, founders are like, well, we're pre, we're, we're pre-commercial. We can't do that. I'm like, well, you should be creative about it. Like, can you get letters of intent? Can you show like, hey, here's a list of 10 hospitals, 10 KOLs we had meetings with, and they're all like, yeah, we're, we're very interested. You know, so I think, again, like the, the quality questions you ask yourself will generate more creative answers. But you're absolutely right, which is within these cycles, I think that there's this, uh, in a lot of new uh, founders and entrepreneurs' minds, they think of like what they see in the movie. It's like, oh, you, you have a really good pitch deck. You go and pitch the VC. And then like you just follow up and then you get the money and and you can't do that anymore because there's more you're getting. I can't imagine what your inbox is looking like. So like you, you by yourself and your team have a lot to go through just to evaluate, do your due diligence, everything. That's not going to happen in a week because sometimes it feels like like if you need to raise money a year from now, you have to start marketing and doing all these things from now. So there's like time to digest that. Right. Would you would you agree with that? Totally. Exactly what I was referring before. Those are different times. We started that maybe over a year ago. Gen, you know, generally speaking, as I said before, it happens every few years, whether the capital markets, whatever the recession, whatever it may be the reasons, but it's also obviously impacting the VC community. And we've been seeing the drop of, uh, of investments by VCs and others, some of which are focusing on their existing portfolio and not making new rounds of investment just because. And some, some do, but in, in a different, uh, different uh, phase and different uh, in some cases, different structures even. But it, it is, this is, don't, don't be afraid as an entrepreneur, don't be afraid to be rejected. Even if you need the capital, if you still have the capital for a year, you know, do a sanity check and, and keep those VCs that you've been in contact with updated and, and understand that, that, that this is the way you build trust and, and transparency and acknowledgement and you show the openness, that you are, you are open to, to get some feedbacks, you are open to be rejected. You're not afraid to come over and over again and to try again. This is okay. As opposed to, you know, keeping like the last six months till you're uh, running out of uh, any, 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 uh, any ability to, to, you know, to take the company with the burn rates to another three or four or five months, which will be needed for fundraising. So those are different uh, uh, timelines of fundraising and, and it's mm-hmm. okay to play differently in those, in those times. No, absolutely. Any advice, maybe, uh, I'm sure you have some advice here, but is there an example of an entrepreneur that you, you know, or company that you rejected maybe once or twice, but then you ended up investing in? Like, if so, like what, what changed? Like, is there, is there one that kind of comes to mind for you? Um, the, 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 actually, the one that, we, that I just spoke about, CVA, the stroke detection company, it was, uh, you know, initially, and it, it, it may sound like uh, uh, not such a crucial, but it, it was crucial back at the time, the business model, which I was trying to emphasize before that, when they initially came to us, first of all, they were quite young, but, uh, but uh, the reason that we said no to them, it was they were looking to, you know, the best, the most understandable, I would say, value would be once in the EMS, once in the ambulances, and you need to know where to refer the patients. So using that technology, you know, you would say, instead of going to, you know, whatever hospital it may be, go to this hospital because the patient is suffering from stroke. But then again, before a CT scan, by the understanding of the paramedic. Um, and actually, that uh, business model which they presented in EMS services, when we did our 
you know, checks and due diligence, it was not enough. There's merely, maybe even today, I would, I would probably claim the same thing. There's not much uh, of uh, money to, for those EMS services to buy and be equipped with new technologies and to implement, even though it's a life-saving technology potentially and, you know, the, uh, the rehabilitation after a stroke situation, cost related to the government could be huge by implementing such new technologies uh, using AI and others. But because of their business model back at the time, they, they insisted on that because, you know, they felt it while getting to the ER, which now when they came again to us, it's, a, you know, there's le less of a, of a unique value, a, cl a clinical value, which apparently there isn't. You know, they got uh, uh, some strong feedbacks from various hospitals as, as to the uniqueness of the technology, as to the value of the technology. There's still a business case which needs to be built properly, obviously, but it's, 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 it's just that, you know, it's just within the process, you know, whether we should come up and justify and protect it or whether we adjust and come up again to those investors such as Sanara and saying, now we have adjusted our business model, we shall, both for validation purposes, as well as for the business model to justify the ability to pay, would be to start with hospitals and not with patients' home, neither with, even with ambulances, as initially as a B2C or a, or a B2B play to ambulances or, or patients' home and do the diagnostic over there. So this is, this is a good example. Interesting. Yeah, and I think, you know, that's, um, it's, it's good to hear that because I think a lot of times, um, you know, again, the founders who are going to listen to this uh, are going to benefit from your advice, is that especially those founders who are going to go to LSI, you know, sometimes they're looking to get everything done and like, walk away from LSI saying like, oh, I raised this, which does happen. It does like, I know companies have gone to LSI and like that week, they're able to, you know, get a few checks written to them. But most of the time that just doesn't happen. And a lot of times, like, it's like a plane taken off from, you know, from Israel going to, you know, I, I don't know, to London or something. If you hit a little bit of turbulence, you don't turn the plane back and then go back to your, you know, to where you started. It's like, you know, you hit a little bit of turbulence, you just kind of adjust course. So I think that a lot of times when founders go to like an LSI or they have a meeting with like with you and Sonar Ventures that they got to take this feedback and then go back and say, okay, you know, it's just like, it's just like with, with product. You, if you come up with a product like a robot, surgeon uses it, they're going to tell you like, you know, this could be better. You don't go and just say, oh, we're just going to scrap the whole robot, right? You just go and adjust it, right? Because it's a product. Same thing in this case, like it's it's a product for investors, right? So it's like customer feedback at these kind of events where you're like, oh, yeah. our customer here is an investor. We got to go back and work on this investment product so they feel better, uh, you know, buying it, you know? Yeah, but on the other hand, let's just be honest and, 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 and do, uh, you know, uh, describe the other scenario whereby in some cases, entrepreneurs do stumble into a wall whether they got a no, no, no from investors and saying, you know, this is not a proper business model or this is not a product, this is not a saleable product. You know, it, it, it may interfere with the uh, workflow of the physicians. It may be, you know, and in some cases, and we do meet some of those entrepreneurs that are falling in love with those technologies, not even with the product, you know, a core technology. It's not always a product and definitely not a successful one. And then they need to go back and listen, listen again and, and don't not to be offended and going, going back to the drawing board or do a market research and find the right use case, which will be eventually the right use cases. I mean, companies were saved by identifying, in some cases, the very last minute of the right use case for a certain technology. Um, and this, this yeah. is, a, you know, the, there's a company out of Israel called Itamar Medical that eventually was sold. Oh, it's a great story. For Itamar. $500 million. And, and only when they... To, to ResMed, right? Um, was it Resmed? Sure 
Um, no, 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 sure. no. I think I think maybe uh, Siemens. Hold yeah, on. I, I don't think, I don't, I'm gonna look. Yeah. I'm gonna look it up. Uh, they were sorry. Please finish your thought while while I Zoll so, so, Zoll acquired them. Zoll, so exactly. <laughs> there right, we go. Right, right. For five hundred and thirty million dollars, whatever. But but they they they've been doing like a problem the finger for sleep disorders basically, and they've been trying to replace. You know, when we go to a sleep lab and whatever, it's uncomfortable. Whatever. Initially, they've been looking to to do that at patients' home and to set the technologies, hoping that people will you know eventually will find or will will be better off with doing those uh, uh, sleep apnea disorder tests at the patient's home or in those clinics. But eventually, when they they understood that the uh, you know those sleep disorders do cause some cardiac issues, they've been shifting actually and looking into the cardiology space. And cardiologists been trying to now adopt that that solution and, and buying that solution as part of their uh, practice. And this is where you know changed the companies and sales started to grow. It's it sounds like a, a tiny, or it may not sound a tiny, but it was a it, it may sound you know. Sleep disorder, but deals, those are different fields and different yeah. people, and different uh, uh, stakeholders, and different decision makers, and that that's changed the whole picture. Absolutely, yeah, and you know, I, I'm glad you mentioned that. I should probably do some episode on this, but there there isn't. I really feel like there's even me as a you know, I didn't I didn't raise money for my company, uh, but whether you're venture backed or you're you know bootstrapped or or a small business owner or something, there's something to be said about the art of introspection and intuition to pivot you know so Intamar is one my favorite example of this at least in our industry is intuitive intuitive came out and they had a robot that was for specifically it started with like cardiac surgery right and they were thinking of all these different areas and there was even internally when they said hey i think we should go after the prostate there was internally some people they didn't they didn't want to do that they're like there's nothing sexy about that I, you know i don't want to i think somebody even said like we're going we're gonna to be like a P robot. Like, I don't want to do that. But that shift made it this billion dollar behemoth, you know? Uh, same thing, uh, Oris. Oris, the, the company, the, that was the largest uh, robotic acquisition in history. They started out actually uh, uh, as a robot for ophthalmology, I believe. And then they made this pivot through, through a product. Jeff Alvarez, who's, the, who's he's a product, uh, VP of product. Uh, now he's chief strategy officer. I mean, he's going to be on the show soon. He kind of had this whole case to the board about why we should focus on the lungs, right? I think there's this art behind like saying, hey, we're going to have a thesis. And maybe I would imagine it's the same for VCs. You have a thesis, you deploy the thesis and you say, let's see what happens in the market, like in the real world and we've been simulating it. Let's see what happens in the real world. And then take those data points and say, here's how we're going to shift and change the thesis. I feel like the great, great startups and entrepreneurs, that's how they, that's how they sort of approach things. So going back to maybe to dive into that a bit better, this is uh, this is exactly the art of listening in my eyes, um, yeah, and, it, and being able to acknowledge reality as is. So initially, I was saying, you know, we do meet, and I see a lot of entrepreneurs, maybe specifically Israelis, but but uh, I don't want to, you know, criticize necessarily just Israelis, but but it's this phenomenon which which I talk quite freely about, and I think I'm not mistaken by the fact that let, let let's put it on Israeli entrepreneurs, you know. There's a lot of abilities, some of which came out of the Israeli army with the best army units, intelligence and whatever. And they have a lot of confidence, some of which have been repeated serial entrepreneurs that did some exits and coming back to the marketplace. But generally speaking, uh, there would be also a lot of uh, entrepreneurs that eventually the process of selling and selling and selling 
would be the major process or the major, uh, um, I would say, uh, ca characteristics of of of, uh, of that session that they will do with the market of kind of uh, listening to the market and shaping up the product. Well, the the process should be or the the ability should be vice versa should be kind of take it inside and listen, listen more than just try to sell and sell and sell outside. This is this is. This is a major, major issues that have saved so many companies. Um, I had the CEO, and this is a story that obviously without names, that was uh, one of our companies uh, using AI for some kind of an application that was traveling to the West Coast. And it's quite a distance to go from Israel, from Tel Aviv to, you know, to the West Coast. And I've been hinting up to him and saying, you know, you're trying to fundraise. He's been a high-tech person. And I've been telling him... Uh, you know, you're trying to, this is a long distance. Why don't you do a sanity check with local VCs? And why you need to go to the West Coast so much? It's costly. It takes a lot of time, a lot of your energy. And he was, to some extent, I gave him the leeway to do that. I was the chairman of the company. And then only after, you know, a year, he was able to tell me that he got some rejections every now and then. Maybe, I mean, the immaturity of the product. But there was one time that someone told him, why are you coming here? You're not a Stanford graduate. And then, and then he was like, he acknowledged that. So I'm not saying whether it was right or wrong. I'm not saying that uh, non-Stanford graduate would be able to fundraise or not, or be able to fundraise in the Silicon Valley or not. I'm just saying the the, 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 the message was there for the few months before, which he was unwilling to listen. He was not willing to listen. And the, the company was not doing good regardless to that. They were like the ability of fundraising and but it killed almost like eight to 10 months, which is a lot, a lot in, in the life it's cycle. It's a lot of time. It's a lot of, a lot of uh, uh, traveling and, and cost related to that. And as opposed to, you know, if he would have listened to us and he would have listened to those feedbacks too early to this, to this, to this. And eventually those changes that you do, if you do listen carefully and you acknowledge and you see reality as is, could save those companies. No, I know. I'm so happy you mentioned this. And I feel like somebody... I mean, there needs to be a book or a series on, on this because there's, I feel like there's a lot, when you become an entrepreneur, I feel like all, all the the bad habits and weaknesses you have in your personal life, they will be exposed at scale as an entrepreneur, big time, big time. And and I try and pay attention to that even myself. You know, my business is only, it, it'll be two years old in January, but I kind of look back and like, I was able to identify certain like, oh, you know what, when I have this problem. It's because in my own personal life, this is how I am, right? You know, and one of the things that I, I always think about, uh, and this is why, like, I, I'm very open to getting feedback on my business and business model from people who are not in my industry. There's a entrepreneurial, like a like a mastermind group I'm a part of. None of these guys are in medtech, but I tell them everything I'm doing because I just need one person to find something. Maybe, maybe uh, like five percent of what they say is 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 right, but that's all I need. You know, because that's like all I need to change things, you know, and I'll share like one uh, personal story, you know, a long time. You you have two. How old are your sons? 10 and 12. Oh, they're really young. OK, yo, you'll appreciate it. So, you know, I'm, I'm married to a, to a wonderful woman. I, I have an amazing, amazing wife, amazing mother. But when I was 29 or 30, um, I was kind of like, yeah, I, I think I want to try and settle down. I, you know, but back then I was single. I had a you know, I just left Mazor. Mazor had got acquired. I, I was able to buy like a home. And so I felt like very like successful. I was like, I bought a home in America. Great. And I, my parents, um, through my aunt, they told me about this girl. They're like, oh, this girl, she's Turkish. So I'm Turkish and she's, she's just, my wife was living to her. You should meet this girl. 
And I started getting a lot of pressure from my parents. Oh, you, when are you going to meet her and everything? And I got very angry. I was 29. I was like, I'm not going to meet her. And I remember thinking like, you know, what do my parents know? Like, uh, you know, they're, they're a little old school. Like I, I know. And I remember, I don't know what I saw, Asaf, but something hit me. And I said, what if my parents are right? Like, what, what if they do know what's best for me? Is it going to kill me to listen to them? And so that was the day where I, I decided, I'm like, you know, what? let me go like meet this girl. And so she was going to fly to my, she was flying to Miami. She worked for the airlines. So we went and met and, you know, as the saying goes, like the rest is history. But that always stays with me today when I talk to different people. Even now, when I talk to my father, he might say something about my business and I'll get like upset or, you know, maybe I'll be like, no, but I always think I'm like, would it kill me to consider that? Like, what am I like? Because sometimes when, as especially as an entrepreneur, you get so close to a problem in your business and it, you, you're, you're under the influence of so many emotions that you don't see clearly, you know? And it sometimes it takes like somebody from outside with experience and intuition and everything, just be like, you should consider this other way. And I feel like so many founders will benefit just from like learning how to think this way, you know? You know, the, uh, you know what's the hardest, in some cases, um, what could be potentially the hardest shot when you take in the game of basketball? Oh, that's a great question. I don't know the, I want to guess, but can I, I'm going to take a guess. Is it the free throw? Exactly. Re oh, okay. In some, Why? In some cases, in some cases, because... Everybody's quiet. You may be standing in, you know, uh, just yourself with 20,000 people and it's just you and the awareness and the need to, uh, you know, to actually to, to put, put that silence and, and not to listen to the, this is not to listen, but rather to listen to yourself and to the, the hard work that you've been putting into. But it's, it's the, um, in some cases, when you do try to listen uh to to some themes that you, you know hard work uh and 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 the ability to to be open up to the flow of you know of the court of the game not just to focus on yourself when you do that you know and, and the, this almost an automatic kind of a shot that you should be doing if you can if you put everything aside you're getting uh, to be uh, quiet enough and, and focus enough and listen to yourself uh in that case you know, I've been practicing, I can do it in some cases. I mean, it's not if a 20% uh, gap uh, um, and companies winning um, with, with no doubts, but it's, it's like uh, the last minute shot or whatever, the foul line, it's, it's such a different flow of the game because so much that we do, as you mentioned, you know, we reject, we don't say this is part of the game, we play, we've been aggressive, this and this. And only when you stop and you listen to yourself, to the crowd, it becomes a different, it's not, it takes us from the flow to a different uh, comfort zone. It takes us out of the comfort zone into something which we are not used to. We're not sometimes used to listen to ourselves or used to listen to someone else because we're trying to sell and sell and sell and sell. But this is where it becomes difficult. But this is also, if you do embrace that, the ability to be quiet, the ability to take it upon yourself, to listen to the crowd, listen to yourself, it becomes, then it becomes something else. You have been, you've been educating yourself to, to behave differently uh, and not within the flow of rejection, of being aggressive, of trying to sell and whatever on the day to day. I think that's, that's an illustration that came to my mind as, as even if, even though it may be hard initially, but it's something that you, when you practice it and you practice to listen and more and more so, you observe the knowledge that resides out there 
it is it, it's uh, better chances to become successful. Absolutely, no, absolutely. And Asaf, you know, we're getting close to time, and I really appreciate you, you know, spending some time with us. By the way, uh, I'm just going to say this publicly. Like, I know my audience, well, they're going to want to have you back, and so definitely, I want to have you back. You know, we'll we'll talk more, like, you know, specific topics and everything. Definitely want to have you back on the show. But I have one last question for you. Is okay, sure. and sure. and I'm gonna and you you get to spend again. I'm good on my time. You you know you for you you know it's late over there. So here's here's my I'm gonna here's my question and then I'm going to read something. So um, for me, you know, my first company I worked for was Mazzaro Botticelli. I was exposed early in my career to the way of Israeli innovation. And there's this very unique dynamic where I think every citizen in Israel goes, you know, they go through the military. So you get leadership training, right? So there's that, that side of it. Then the Israeli um, mentality, and I can say this because I'm Middle Eastern, which is like very bullish, very like, you know, when you speak to an Israeli, you know where you stand. Israelis do not hold back, you know. And so there's there's always you know this this tension when it comes to innovation. That especially when you're trying to solve a problem. I remember this at Mazor is that when you when I would work with Israelis, we would argue about things, but that tension would force us to get to the source of truth and solve the problem, right? And so here's the quote I want to read to you. This is from your uh, from your your, your your one of your presidents, Shimon Prez, who said this. Jews' greatest contribution to history is dissatisfaction. We're a nation born discontent. Whatever exists, we believe can be changed for the better. And you started this uh, quote in one of your talks, and I thought it was such an interesting quote. Can you talk to us about this culture of innovation that exists in Israel? Because I want the entrepreneurs who are listening to just kind of like somehow adopt some of that mentality. So if you can talk a little bit about this idea that, you know, you know, Israelis, they have this thing of just being discontented, dissatisfied with everything. Can you tell us a little bit about that and, and what that means to you? I think that, you know, when you when you look into ecosystem, which uh, have a lot of uh, kind of um, um, entrepreneurship uh, spirit behind it, those are hubs of innovation. In some cases, it could be related to social mobility. You know, people want to, they want to be rich and this is why they give it a shot and they, they spend few years. In some other cases, the kind of, there's no social mobility, you know, uh, some some cultures, some countries, you know, they keep they keep on working and, and for 20, 30 years in the same same place, same job. In Israel, I think it's a combination of uh, the belief in social mobility, the belief of, of successful stories that, you know, people made it and did a lot of money. But it's more than that. It's not just the, the it's more than that. I think it's something that uh, being a melting pot and being, uh, you know, uh, able to bring, uh, uh, you know, a, a lot of... Uh, uh, the, you know, past the Holocaust and, and from various geographies in Europe, in Africa, in, in Asia, uh, and in the U.S. and others, it's it's a, quite a melting pot in Israel, which uh, still has been cooked and boiled to to a certain degree, where you know nobody accepts and everybody fights and everybody argues and, and everybody thinks that they, are, they should be prime ministers. If you have we have nine million people, so nine million people believe that they each and every one of them should be a prime minister. Um, so, but but when Shimon Peres, the reason that I that I use that quote is that truly the dissatisfaction. This is a you know, it's not just from from a, a being rich. It's the dissatisfaction of the status quo, or dissatisfaction when being you know people are dying in hospitals, or people are you know suffering in the streets, or people are. I think there's some kind of a level of sensitivity and some kind of a level of that interaction between people. On one side, it may be, and it is to some extent, quite quite aggressive. Israelis are quite aggressive and not just blunt. 
some people may say they are just blunt, or but in some cases it could be aggressiveness, just just because this is the way you know, as 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 we do in the either in the Middle East or Mediterranean kind of a culture, kind of a warmth atmosphere. But the dissatisfaction is is the ability combined with the ability to think differently and to believe that you can change for the better and stay away from the status quo and make something happen. And I think the fact that, you know, even in terms of expertise, it's a small country. If you're looking for a surgeon in microsurgery, if you're looking for that and that and that, the expertise resides within relatively a small kind of a neighborhood that you can approach and communicate. You don't need to fly from New York to San Diego to nearby you in order to, to be able to talk to a specialist. So all of those ingredients, you know, the army, the, the confidence that people are getting in the army, the ability to, to think out of the box and to change the status quo and the dissatisfaction, as Shimon Perez said, this is all part of the, of the, of the culture, the DNA within the Israeli uh, landscape. And I've been seeing, you know, I'm quite, you know, traveling quite a bit. I've been seeing, you know, kind of a weird uh, teams of, of, you know, maybe one of the airline's pilots is also an entrepreneur in one of the medical companies. He's been talking to me, hey, we approach you guys in Sanal. And I'm like, you know, he's both uh, flying a, a Dreamliner, a 787 kind of an air, aircraft, and he's been an entrepreneur in the medical field. Like this combination, that convergence that everybody's, everybody needs to be part of. And now there's a lot of politics in Israel, but this is regardless to that point. But on, on Friday evening, this is not just politics. You, you will be talking to everybody, everybody somehow has been dragged in part of, of a startup company, which is quite amazing in Israel. It's quite amazing to see that somehow, almost everybody is somehow involved in, 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 in startups, whether as a consultant, or as, a, as a team member. And this is why it's such a vibrant ecosystem. You know, it's, uh, it's hard to explain both cultural as well as uh, um, eventually uh, it, it became a DNA. It became a DNA of, of, the, of the Israeli culture to create, to change. And, and, and to come up with uh, new companies, new sort of companies. Oh, that's amazing. Well, you know, I, uh, I'm, I, I have a bias towards U.S. companies because I'm, I'm, I'm here in America. But believe it or not, a lot of people, young people who I mentor who start at MedTech, they're like, you know, what's your recommendations? I always tell them like, well, you know, go work for a startup for sure, you know, and, and try and find a U.S. one. But if anything, if you can work for an Israeli startup, I was like, you know, it'll it'll. It, it could break you, I said, but it'll make you so much better. And uh, I, I credit a lot of my success and who I became to, you know, to the to the team, but especially the Israeli team that I worked with over uh, at Mazor. Um, so it's been ten years. Facing, I haven't worked for facing reality. I'm sure that that you know facing reality because we have to face reality in so many situations. Mm -hmm. Being you know uh, the the situation of Israel need to fight for its survival for so many years and to come up with innovation. Those are you know, the high-level explanations, uh, necessity is a matter of innovation. This is one of the verticals. Necessity is a matter of innovation. And that created quite a few companies out of Israel. But also that DNA, the culture that we've been talking before. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. And, you know, now that I'm running my own own thing, I'm looking forward to, you know, helping and working with more Israeli companies. So, Asaf, thank you so much for joining us joining us on the yes. show. Uh, for those who are interested, interested, I'm going to leave in the show notes. You can, you know, follow Asaf on, on LinkedIn. Also, go check Sanar Ventures, a website, sanarventures.com. I'm your host, Omar M. Khatib. If you haven't reviewed the show, come on, guys. Seriously, you've been listening to the show for a long time and I haven't read it. Take a second. Leave that five-star review down below. Subscribe because we do release a lot of episodes that we do not promote. So go ahead and subscribe so you can get those notifications. Leave the reviews five stars. Write a review. And we'll see you all next time. Bye for now. 
Thank you for enjoying another epic episode of the State of MedTech. If you're feeling inspired and love this episode, do us a favor, hit that subscribe button and turn notifications on so you never miss an episode. And be sure to give us five stars and write a short review because that helps more people discover this amazing community of ours. If you're a company who has a executive that you'd like to be on the show, or perhaps you want to sponsor one of the episodes, shoot us an email at hello at Take care and we'll see you next time.